Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, July the 17th, 2023. Um, regular viewers, listeners to the show. Know that I've been traveling recently. I spent some time uh, on a speaking tour. Uh, I was in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria, and also in Riga, Latvia, and um, Vilnius in Lithuania. When people ask me where I went, I said, oh, well, I went to Eastern Europe. However, my guest today, I think, might be correcting me. Um, he's the author of a really interesting provocative piece from the Los Angeles uh, book review from uh, January of 2017. Goodbye, Eastern Europe. He suggests that Eastern Europe is disappearing, the f not just the physical place, but the idea. Um, everything is the same. Doesn't matter where you are in Eastern Europe. It could be the same as Bremen or Charleroi or Newcastle or Fargo. Uh, and he's put it all together in a new book. It's out, uh, I think it's next week in the US, and it's already out in the UK. Goodbye, Eastern Europe, an intimate history of a divided land. Uh, Jacob Mikanowski is um, uh, he's almost a PhD in history from UC Berkeley, and he's talking to us from his home in Portland. Goodbye, Eastern Europe, Jacob. It's gone, finished, ever, forever. I think it's vanishing. I think this you can still find it. There are still traces of it around. Um, as a brand, as a as a overall identification, people are trying to escape it as much as possible. Uh, they're trying to shed that label. Countries are trying to shed that label. Uh, Latvia, Lithuania, they certainly don't like it. They they're trying to rebrand themselves as part of, part of the Nordic zone. Poland, Hungary, Czechos former Czechoslovakia. Uh, very much identify as Central Europe. They don't like Eastern Europe as a as a title or a name. And in the Balkans, you have different ways of rebranding, re-strategizing Adriatic, Western Adriatic, Eastern Balkans, uh, Black Sea Zone, Mediterranean. But anything to get away from that that label, Eastern Europe. So when was the the term invented, Eastern Europe? That's a good question. There should people debate that whether um, the historian Larry Wolf really says it's creation of the Enlightenment of 18th century Western European thought, uh, as in the Enlightenment took hold in France and Scotland and uh, increasingly Germany, that they looked to the East and saw a less developed, less philosophically, socially, religiously advanced place that they started describing as Eastern Europe. And that's actually disputed. Some, some people think it really only came into real use in the 20th century. Um, real currency as an idea really after World War I and more so after World War II with the creation of the, uh, the Soviet bloc. And then what about the role of what you call the Soviet Union, what was once called the Soviet Union, now is Russia? Has Russia ever been considered part of Eastern Europe? Was it part of it or was it the, the other bookend uh, between the West and Russia? So it depends who you ask. Uh, political scientists tend to group them all together. Eastern Europe, um, economists too often, depends who you talk to. They'll, they'll, there'll be a big tent, a bigger tent, a small tent version of Eastern Europe. For me, and my book tries to be a history of Eastern Europe, 
really from uh, from soup to nuts, from beginnings to the present, I don't include Russia. I do include what used to be the Russian Empire, the Western side of the Russian Empire. But for me, Eastern Europe is really the the zone of small countries, small states, small nationalities and ethnicities between Germany on one side and Russia on the other. The zone, uh, Milan Kundera, who just passed, had a phrase, wonderful phrase, uh, maximum diversity in minimum space. And it's that zone that feels embattled, feels that its sovereignty, the sovereignty of the individual countries is always uh, at risk, as it has indeed proven to be, between these much larger global powers that also don't have that internal diversity of religion and creed and language that uh, that Eastern Europe does. So for me, it's out. But for some people, it's in. So you don't include Germany? I don't. There are Germans. There are There's a large amount of German settlers and German, uh, going back very early into the Middle Ages, for instance, in, uh, especially in what's now Romania, uh, in southern Transylvania or in uh, Slovakia and the Spiech, there are large pockets of German people, but not the country of Germany. And actually not really East Germany. East Germany gets a little mentioned, but really not, it doesn't fulfill that diversity criteria that I think is so important. We had uh, Alexander Heeman on the show, the mm. Bosnian-American writer. Uh, he talked, he has a new book out about, uh, it's a remarkable book, The World and All That It Holds. I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's it's a book about the 20th century. And above all else, a book about, I think, Sarajevo is Jerusalem. Is there a quintessential East European city or a city that was once in Eastern Europe? Sarajevo seems one to me in the sense that it's so full of minorities. Are there other places that somehow captured the spirit of what Eastern Europe once was? I think there are I think there are a couple. Sarajevo is an excellent one. It has that incredible um, multi-religious, multi-ethnic character, or at least it, it did. And you can still see that when you're walking along the uh, the river and the kind of crazy Moorish revival 19th century architecture that's actually built by Czech architects in the Austria in uh, when it was part of Austro-Hungary the the Muslim majority part of Austro-Hungary it's a wonderful um melting pot's kind of the wrong word for Eastern Europe usually it's more of a salad bowl of different ingredients but together historically Chernovitz which is now Chernivtsi a somewhat forgotten city in in Ukraine that spent mm. most of the interwar years is uh part of Romania but really has this German Jewish cap- capital upon German Jewish poetry, Yiddish learning, um, and and not just Jewish. Uh, the Greek writer Gregor von Retzori was from there and remembered in his in his novels. Vilnius, I think, is another one. And I have I have family roots in Vilnius. My grandmother's from Vilnius, so I have maybe it's a little local pride. But I think um, it's a little harder to see in Vilnius right now. But it has that combination of the Polish Catholic Baroque. And once upon a time, actually two very different kinds of, of Jewish life, Karaite and uh, and regular, the, the kind of Jewish Protestants living there, and the Lithuanians and the Russians all living together has that kind of uh, spiritual diversity. And actually, it's a city I really love. So, Yeah, I agree. Story. I think Vilnius is a glorious place. Um, of course, for the Jews, it was once known as the Jerusalem of, of learning yeah. before... Um, uh, before Zionism, 
you talked about the Jews of Vilnius. Could one argue that Eastern Europe died with the Nazi elimination of East European Jewry? One could. And I think that is, that's part of a goodbye Eastern Europe. That is a, a death knell of a kind of Eastern Europe. The, the complicating fact for me is that I am, uh, I'm one of the few remaining Polish Jews, Polish speaking Jews. And I'm part of that community, which is pretty small and people tend to know each other in Warsaw. So I'm a little hesitant. People will also say, well, well, that, that vanished, that's gone. It is, it suffered a, a near mortal blow. But it does, you know, at least in my life, it, it, I grew up in that world. Uh, I still kind of live halfway in it. So the world of Eastern European Jewry, although hugely diminished, secularized, um, it's not gone. People think it's just blanket gone. It actually does, does exist. It's actually in a more major way in, in Budapest and Romania and in a smaller but culturally really significant way uh, across the region. So it's kind of part of the, the personal draw of this topic for me. You note in the piece, uh, the, the LA Review piece, that one of the qualities, one of the things defining Eastern Europe was its mixed population. You've talked about Sarajevo, and of course, Muslims and Christians and Jews. Uh, Heman writes about this brilliantly, and then Vilnius. Why is this region, um, you talk about psycho geography too um why is this region so mixed so much more mixed in some ways than east uh, than western europe uh and other parts of the world i think it, it developed a little bit differently historically then and there are places like it in the world um maybe north mesopotamia parts of southeast asia parts of the the indian subcontinent but it's pretty unique definitely in europe that western europe has nothing really like it they're, they're pockets of diversity, they're pockets of different species that are located, you know, on the fringes of countries. So you have like a little Welsh-speaking area on the corner of the UK, you have a little Basque area on the corner of Spain, but you don't have this incredibly, what used to be the case of Eastern Europe, of diversity everywhere. What I call like fractal diversity, that you go to a town, city, there'll be four languages. Riga, which you were just in, was a four-language city at least four major languages Four, you had to have newspapers in four languages in 1900 and areas were like that small towns, even villages would have three different religions, three different languages because it was connected to the class system and it was woven through. And the, the historical re reasons for that are complex, but essentially from the middle ages on Western Europe got more and more homogeneous. It's countries got more and more uh, uniform, in language and religion. And that was imposed from top down by expelling minorities, by expelling religious minorities, pushing the Muslims out of Spain and Sicily, expelling Jews from France, Spain, England, the Rhine, so on. And by working to try and have impose a single religious order on society as much as possible. So by the, through the Counter-Reformation, through the Reformation, making Norway almost 100% Lutheran, making France almost you know, 90 plus percent Catholic, really creating that uniformity. Whereas you had a much looser power structure in the East, you had weaker states and then empires, and it was really dominant empires. And empires exploited difference to their benefit. They actually 
saw having real divisions of class and language and religion as a resource, keeping people apart, keeping people segmented, meaning that there was no major opponent to their own power. By giving different privileges to different groups, you could build that imperial coalition. And so they actually cultivated that diversity um, you know, and, and sustained it cynically, maybe, but effectively. It's one of the great ironies, isn't it, Jacob, of, of Eastern Europe, or what was once known, at least according to you, as Eastern Europe, is on the one hand, it was the land of empire, of diversity, of an Ottomanism or a Habsburgism that was defined by its multi multiplicity of identities. That's what was rooted in its in the organization of its politics, of its state. And yet at the same time, it's also in many ways the birthplace of political nationalism in the especially in the 19th century. One of my favorite books on this is Gellner's book on nationalism. Gellner, of course, being a, uh, a quintessential East European who happened to live in, in the United Kingdom. How do these two things coexist? On the one hand, a place of diversity, and on the other, of these burgeoning nationalisms of the 19th and 20th centuries? And Gellner, Gellner had that background in Prague and, and the... and the Czech case is really kind of a, a perfect test case for an emergence of nationalism. It's probably the most influential little like bottle case for him, for Miroslav Prok. I think the I think the key thing there is the problem of political modernity. And that Eastern European diversity, what sustained it, what created it, what kept it going, was a fairly pre-modern political order. Even if it was modernizing, the Austro-Hungary developed a, a parliament and a constitution and uh, railways and, and technologically, civilizationally, they weren't that behind. But as a system, each of those empires hadn't had a pretty archaic core of a semi-divine uh, sacral emperor at the center that kind of made this increasingly strange system as you go through the 19th century, this kind of strange hodgepodge uh, Certainly, Austro-Hungary is very strange, but Russia too, extremely different administration in every part and different laws for different religions, very complex Byzantine case, uh, Ottoman Empire too, while, while it flourished. Um, the thing holding that together was a kind of really pre-modern political idea, how to make that work with modern ideas of citizenship, of democracy, and crucially of equality. How do you have political equality for these very mixed zones, that's the, that's the dilemma that makes it such a, such a kind of a laboratory experiment of nationalism. Because if you have these extremely mixed areas, who, who gets to rule? Who gets to have the final say? Is it the, the disenfranchised peasantry? That's the majority, but the least educated in the forest that speaks one language? Is it the, is it the nobles, the aristocracy? that owns the most, that has the largest inherited political privilege, but speaks another language and another uh, has another faith often? Or is it the, and then what do you do about the cities that often have a third language or several languages, third group of faiths that has the, the mercantile groups in between? How, what do they, what say do they have politically? And in searching for an answer, the lowest common denominator, the easiest coalition builder is it proved to be language. Yeah, language, language. And, and one of the things that's 
remarkable. You you already touched on it earlier in the conversation was many of my formerly known as East European friends, I can't call them East European anymore, I have to call them something else. They're all so proficient in language. I mean, how many languages do you speak? Two really well. And then what Polish and English, Polish and English, and then maybe three more. So, so, yeah, so, so is probably fairly fluent. I mean, my Croatian friends, for example, they're all fluent in about eight languages. Um, and it's, do you think you lose anything from all those languages? Is there something that, is there any cost or is it just a good thing to speak so many languages? Do you lose an identity? Sometimes I think, are you as proficient in your own language if you could speak seven or eight other languages? That's an interesting question. I think, no, I, I think it's a net net positive. I, I It's interesting for me. I, I learned Polish first at home from my parents. My parents didn't really speak English when they, they came to America. They didn't really come of their own volition. They kind of got stuck here. Uh, when martial law was declared in Poland. And so they were kind of marooned in America. I lived in this Polish bubble and learned English second. And it always, even though I've spoken it almost my whole life, it is still a second language. It doesn't have the affect. It doesn't have the emotional weight of Polish. I, I talked like if I want to talk to a dog or a, or a cat, I always use Polish. I assume they understand that better than English. I know other people do that. That's the language of, of emotion. For some reason, it's the language of would talk to other that that's the kind of spiritual core does it make uh english worse i think it can make it better because you have a, a sense of the plasticity of language you think of nabokov or conrad yeah i was thinking of nabokov and conrad who both of who course are, wrote brilliant english i mean especially well conrad is polish and nabokov is russian mm -hmm. um yeah or or heman who grew up in sarajevo exactly. and now writes in english um beautifully and i think he moved here when he was in his in like 20 yeah i mean he moved here during the civil war so yeah. he moved here when he was in his 20s and apparently conrad spoke terrible english like had an incredibly thick accent his whole life people could he barely understand him but anyone else um what would, speaking of books and writing are, are there again the i mean you mentioned kundera he died uh this week and uh, the obituaries talk about uh, him as the tragedy of Central Europe, not the tragedy of Eastern Europe. He was, of course, defiantly anti-East European. He reminded everyone he was from Europe. Um, are there, but when I think of Kundera's books, the joke, for example, seems quintessentially East European in a kind of Schweckian sense. Are there, for you, books that somehow capture the spirit of, of of the east europe that seems to be dying now absolutely um i mean the joke's a good one i'm actually i've actually taught that one hrabal bohemian hrabal is, is my yeah that's writer. a good one another and the whole right? the whole panoply starting maybe with um i served the king of england and that's such a funny novel i actually i love that czech humor in novels i think that's such an important what part. about Svoretsky? is he a east european writer uh, sure i mean he's a he's a good czech writer um i like the jazz saxophonist i i Hrabal's probably my favorite uh Schweik, you know hashik's um yeah i mean that's i, I think that's the that's the homer's iliad of um because of it's Europe. because it's a book about resistance to authority and the sort of the element of absurdity and humor, which you don't find 
it seems in as much at least in other parts of the world i think that's right and um and he's such an incredible comic anti-hero a couple others um for me bruno schultz might be the most important i'm actually named yeah. bruno schultz but that's the sort of the borges of, of eastern yeah. europe and um my parents actually my first name is actually bruno i use my middle name uh, professionally and I, I just go uh, by only it. east europeans name their children after writers they do my parents did and i hate that i hate i love the writer i actually hate it as a name um but it is on my birth certificate so bruno is one i, I carry with me uh one that's not as well known jula crudy he's I a hungarian writer no i don't know that one turn of the century and very funny great about food great about kind of the the joie de vivre of uh, of turn of the century hungary I think Hungarian literature is really and Kish is another one who's Kish is another good well. and Kish is another half who Jewish sort of, who lived yeah. everywhere and nowhere and sort of what was sort of between Serbia and Hungary and was half Hungarian Jewish half yeah. Montenegrin had this very split and also loved Borges and loved Schultz and uh, he's another wonderful Borges should have been East European he, he should have been Ireland is kind of part of Eastern Europe spiritually but yeah got lost probably Argentina too. Kind of they ended up Maybe in the wrong it's an place. attitude. Yeah. And then what about other forms? It seems, again, I'm a big fan of what I used to call East European cinema. I'll have to rephrase it. But uh, the, the, the movie tradition is wonderfully rich. You talk about being from Poland, the, the two films, Man of Marble and Man of Iron, to me, again, are the, the quintessential East European films about resistance against the Soviets. It was, is there something about film that somehow... And of course, the Czech tradition is is an enormously rich one. Well, so for me, the, the actually the key to, I like Fida, who did Man of Marvel, Man of Steel, but the the key director is Krzysztof Kieślowski, partly because I just really like him. Yeah, and I like that uh, that sense of you know big philosophical stakes in, in in tiny apartments, and very much films the worst I remember, the worst of the eighties. Also, he's kind of the reason my parents met. Are you? Everything's woven. So uh, in the book, there's a there's a whole section on his uh, wonderful movie Blind Chance. Um, if you if you know it, it's it's on Criterion. If anyone's looking, uh, a guy's running for a train, and depending on whether or not he catches it, his life goes in in three very different directions: politically, personally, socially. And honestly, that's the true story of so many Eastern European lives, including my family's, where things, lives, families, destinies. Get decided by a coin toss. Someone crosses a border, someone doesn't. Someone catches a train, someone doesn't. A family lives, a family dies. That kind of sense of being the plaything of history, of being, you know, of someone else tossing the dice for you, which that movie catches so brilliantly. And I think that's a key part of the the Eastern European condition. In a way, that's not really true of, of Germany or Russia, where you feel like however bad life might get, that at least you're in the driver's seat. Although you of... can come from, I mean, thinking about that, I think of Walter Benjamin and uh, his his life in that context. I mean, he was from Germany, but he probably thought of himself as, or would think of himself as an East European, wouldn't he? I don't think so. No? I think, that, I think quintessentially, the, the divide between German Jews and Eastern European Jews is a is a real one. The, the, I think he's very much, the German Jews share... Tragically, some of that uh, snobbishness, that predicament. But there's also there's a real snobbishness. If you read Arendt, the things she says about Galicians, <clears throat> um, 
there are people who kind of cross that border, but they were they're on the German side. They're German speaking Jews from Eastern Europe, Kafka, Salon, but but they're Benjamin is such a Berliner. So yeah, I was just thinking of his life West. and the whole end of his life, and you know, and all the rest of it. What about? I would love the, to claim him. I'm kind of an yeah, imperialist. Well, you can have him. I'll give you my permission. I don't think he, I don't think he quite fits. What about the Soviet influence? You know, when when you think of Eastern Europe, often people don't think of Greece. Uh, <laughs> we've done lots of shows on Greece. One with the historian Roderick Breton, Greece, biography of a modern nation, a, a wonderful uh, conversation we had about the Greek Revolution of 1821, which is the quintessential East European Revolution. But of course, Greece departed from the rest of the region because of Yalta and because of a deal between Stalin and the West, where Greece became part of the West uh, after the Russian occupation of Eastern Europe. How does Greece fit in? And, and could we argue, uh, Jacob, that really Eastern Europe depends, at least modern conception of Eastern Europe, depends on which places the Russians or the Soviets colonized? That's, that's a fascinating question and a tricky one. I would argue that Greece... I mean, people often will put Greece in the Balkans and they never put it in Eastern Europe, which seems a little paradoxical. Greeks would not, I don't think Greeks like the well, idea Greeks of Greeks. Yeah, but that's, they would hate it. That's beyond, but, the, who cares what yeah. the Greeks think? But Northern Greece fits absolutely into Eastern Europe. And I have a little bit about right. it. Salonika um, is probably another, and in a wonderful book, I, I'm sure you know the Mark, the Mark Mazzaro, Mazzaro book yeah. on, uh, which he, he presents Salonika as the quintessential East European city. So Salonika, absolutely. Um, Ioannina, that whole northern Greek border that was historically incredibly mixed, that had large groups of Albanians and Macedonians, Bulgarians. Thessalonica was the capital of Ladino Jewry, Spanish-speaking right. Jewry. But that was actually true in Ioannina and, um, and up there. So definitely the north. The rest of Greece, kind of. It has that Ottoman heritage. And then there's something... Maybe too maritime, maybe too outward centric, maybe maybe just the self conception doesn't fit. You know, Finland on the north is kind of almost in Eastern Europe. It was in the Russian Empire for a century. Yeah, it had a very bloody civil war that no one remembers between between Bolsheviks, like Finnish Bolsheviks and non-Finnish Bolsheviks. It kind of is the Eastern Europe of Scandinavia, but it also doesn't quite seem like it fits. Not internally, it had a language big language question between the Swedish-speaking minority that was powerful and the Finnish-speaking majority. It doesn't quite fit, even though Estonia is very similar and seems more securely in Eastern Europe. So you have some blurriness around the edges. Yeah, I, think. yeah, I thought of Finland a little like bit when I was in uh, Lithuania. What's the worst bit of Eastern Europe? I, I have to admit that I hadn't been to Sofia before, but I found it a, a horribly provincial place. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never been to Moldova, but I'm assuming that is a complete and utter dump. Are there some really bad bits of Eastern... Probably the really bad bits of what was known as Eastern Europe are still Eastern Europe, Moldova. Well, I, I, I've been to, I think, 17 of what I, 20 Eastern <laughs> European countries. And I didn't make it to Moldova. I, I, and I was going to, and I, I lost the season What's of the travel. worst bit then? Bulgaria well, is pretty bad, isn't it? Bulgaria? I love Bulgaria. I mean, oh, I, you do? Why did you I, love I like Plovdiv. I like Varna more than Sofia. Yeah. I love Albania. Yeah, I haven't um, been to Albania. I've had um, Leah Upi, you know, on the show. She yeah. has a wonderful book out on 
which is the quintessential East European book upon uh, her experience growing up in Hodges, Albania. Yeah, free. That's that's a wonderful book. I think it's a wonderful place. I mean, the places that are the toughest now are the ones that have been the most left behind in this wave of Westernization and uh, and economic development. So the places that are the conflict, like a frozen conflict, like the Republika Srpska, the, the Serbian part of Bosnia is a tough place. Some parts of it, it feels like that war ended yesterday. Just burnt out cities that were burnt out, or villages that were, uh, you know, burnt down in 1992 or 1993 are yeah. still empty. Well, Sarajevo has a little bit of that feel as it, well. And the edges. But then if you, you get up to like that Serbian part is more isolated uh, economically. I, well, parts of the Bosnia, Zenecas are, are tough. And then, yeah, I think the, the kind of Russian front line, the... Um, the parts that are very much have not joined the train towards the West, Belarus, Transnistria. Yeah, I mean, would you include Belarus in East, in the old East Europe? I would. I would, even though politically they are so aligned with Russia, but that's, that's the, at the top socially, you know, that, that big revolt in 2021. Um, I don't know they, they're also a little bit of an edge case, but no, I do include them. Absolutely. I once had, uh, I think it's one of my claims to fame. I once had a girlfriend from Zenit, so really? which I won't get into any detail. And what about the, the, the situation with Ukraine, um, Jacob? Has that compounded the disappearance of Eastern Europe or might it present its reappearance one way or the other? You know, there is, there is an ironic element to the title where I, I feel like people... I am a proponent of Eastern Europe. I'm a proponent of Eastern European memory and history and trying to rekindle what's what is increasingly a a lost idea. And this maybe is where there's I'm really, always a lost idea. Maybe that's its no. beauty. Um, and I like it. Ukraine, I mean, stuff is, when I started this book, when I started the essay that turned into the book, I felt like there was the absolute nadir of attention to the region. Essentially because things were going good in like 2013, 2010, I was studying and in grad school, it seemed a little bit hopeless because there just wasn't any interest or excitement. The kind that there was around in the 80s, around Kundera and around Gombrovich, and people were like the, discovering the literature from the other Europe and the Eastern European film. It's because politically the situation was tense. Now, the Ukraine war has, has brought so much more retention back on the region, especially on Ukraine. Um, it's definitely, definitely it's, people, the world's eyes are back on Eastern Europe. Is it making a strong case for the idea? Maybe. I, there was a, when the war started, actually a Belarusian intellectual, if I quote in the book, Ihar Babku, <clears throat> said, this is a war, this war between Ukraine and Russia is a war between Central Europe and Eastern Europe. This is a war between diversity and uniformity. And I'm like, yes, but for me, what he calls Central Europe is Eastern Europe. Um, there is a, like, so what's the, the definition? Central Europe to me is kind of folded within Eastern Europe. Central Europe is also a much more German cultural zone. I like this bigger Eastern Europe that really goes all the way from the Baltics to the Balkans and is a more kind of capacious category. Um, so I kind of, I kind of like that idea that, that diversity versus uniformity is that true I, I just think that the ukraine war has less to do with 
ethnicity than it does with political system. It's really a war between democracy and autocracy. But we'll see. We'll see how it plays out for, for regional identity. I think locally, Eastern Europe as a category is actually getting even more hollowed out where people either want to be Western or they're in a Russian zone. If there's like a middle aisle between those two things, an Eastern European middle zone, everyone's running for the exit. Everyone's squeezed. running it's east by or the west. end of the middle class in America. Yeah. And the only way to travel in Eastern Europe, or at least what was once Eastern Europe, is by train, isn't it, Jacob? Once no. you start flying or driving, it's no longer Eastern Europe. No, bus. You have to take you have well, to take long haul buses. Right. That's a, I... Horrible. But that's the, that's where you get the real you see the storks and the mud in the roads and um mashrutkas. That's the best way. Is there an element of all this? Uh, uh, Edward Said, the Palestinian scholar, wrote a very influential book, Orientalism. Is Eastern Europe the ultimate Orientalist construction of the West and even of ex-East Europeans like you? I mean, you're not even an ex-Eastern European. You were born in the U.S., right? I was born in the U.S., but then I moved back. I moved back and forth a little bit, so I've spent a couple of years living in Poland. But you're, you're American. You're not Eastern European. Well, I mean, you're American of East European descent. Am I constructing it? Maybe there's an element of distance to it. There is, I'll tell you what, there isn't, there is an element of Orientalism and there's an element of self-Orientalizing. Um, there's a lot of fascination, say, in Poland with Poland's east, with Poland's own internal kind of east, mm. its eastern borders, its crested in the south, and then with the world of the Balkans, the world of Romania. And each country in Eastern Europe has its own mini Orient, internally and off in terms of the kind of less developed region and its, its neighbors. And there isn't always a sense of a single shared cultural space, but there's also a lot of self-exoticizing. Um, self-romanticizing i and you know you carry your her heritage with you, you carry your history with you i i had a i come from a complicated family a family with a lot of secrets a lot of unsaid things a lot of tragedy and a lot of that shvaky and humor you know there's this different mm. cultural mode i think that's that's a little unique and a little different Do you need to have you read uh heeman's book uh i haven't read this one I've read previous This one we're going to love. The world and all that it holds yeah. is really about carrying carrying your identity all, all, all about you. In an odd way, though, and there's only a sort of an, East, an old East European irony to this. Could one argue, Jacob, that East Europe now is the future? All the American conservatives are flooding to, Bud uh, to, to uh, Budapest to learn how Orban does it, learning about uh, illiberal democracy, the... The, the Poles are also pioneering a new kind of illiberal democracy. Uh, Eastern Europe is overtly hostile to Muslim immigrants, which uh, seems to be being replicated in the West, in France and in the United Kingdom. Might Eastern Europe be all of our futures? These, which is why we shouldn't be saying goodbye, Eastern Europe. We should be saying hello, Eastern Europe. Except it's not Eastern Europe. It's just the condition of post-modernity, the condition of the 2020s? I think there are things that are symptomatic that you can see of, of a broader of broader trends that you see most vividly in Eastern Europe, a liberal democracy being one. I'm not sure that people will argue that that's part of a uh, 
you know, an Eastern European malady, that there's a democratic deficit, that the democracy isn't rooted deeply enough. I don't think that's that's really true. I think that there's a broader thing happening in democracies worldwide, uh, a opening for right-wing populism that you see in, in America and in the Philippines as much as in Hungary or Poland, and honestly in, in Italy now, um, across kind of the democratic world. And you can see places where that's that's accentuated, kind of the red states of Europe, which which Poland and Hungary are to a certain extent. And, you know, the, the Muslim question is interesting. On one hand, yeah, there's uh, Orban very much exploits fear of Muslim immigration to strengthen his rule. But on the other hand, Eastern Europe is the heart is the Muslim heartland of Europe. People forget, and this is something I try to bring out in the book, that Europe has a deep rooted, longstanding and still existing Muslim heritage. And that's in the East. Albania is a majority Muslim country and a very moderate, tolerant, multicultural Islam, a very Sufi inflected Islam in Albania and Kosovo. Uh, and like you said, you know, in, in Sarajevo. Bosnia, of course, yeah. And Bosnia. And actually, if you travel in, you know, Bulgaria has remnants of that, or so does Romania. There are even little Muslim villages, very small in, in Poland, Lithuania, and Belarus. So it has, they're hundreds of years old. So maybe it's also a pioneer of a certain kind of multi-religious toleration. Yeah, um, I don't think Eastern Europe is ever going to die. Um, although we got later this week, I've got a, another academic, a historian, Natasha Wheatley on the show. Mm -hmm. um, she has a new book out, The Life and Death of States, Central Europe and the Transformation of Modern Sovereignty, which is a kind of, analysis i guess of neoliberalism and its impact on the state in terms of globalization is this part of it too jacob the neoliberal colonialization i guess of eastern europe is that why it's dying in a way i think it's died many deaths and that's just the latest one i mean it's, i think it started in world war one continued the world war two continued in the population transfers of, of 80 up through the eighties and early nineties uh, and the, and the wars in, uh, in Yugoslavia and neoliberal transformation would be the last one. It is a, uh, but you know, you can't destroy history. The, the roots of the societies, the roots of the regional identities are still there. So as much as people don't, maybe see the commonality i'm arguing that there is something that that will endure uh natasha's book is very interesting it's really more about you know constitution making and sovereign and, and defining the borders and the existence of states even when they don't exist um and that's also it's it is such a you know in gellner too it's the austro-hungary is such a and the imperial legacy of Eastern Europe, it's such an enduringly fertile place for imagining other kinds of Right, and there's society. a nostalgia. We did a show yeah. with a historian, I can't remember his name, who was nostalgic for the Ottoman Empire. Given the rise of nationalism and all the rest of it, there is a kind of nostalgia for Habsburgism or, or, or Ottomanism. There is. Um, it can be diffuse, though. It isn't always politically can code very differently. So, so Ottomanism has now a kind of across the Balkans, you'll find uh, 
Muslim sites, Sufi sites that I'm interested in being rebuilt by the Turkish cultural ministry, kind of planting that flag of the former Ottoman Empire. You see it very vividly in, in, in Sarajevo, but you'll see it in very out of the way places in Belgrade, in Romania, in, in, <clears throat> in Sofia, in Romania, these little, you know, rebuilding uh, a shrine, rebuilding a mosque, and always the Turkish cultural ministry kind of putting that flag of like, this was once Ottoman. In, uh, in the Czech Republic, all the nostalgia for the, where the papsters are probably more hated than anywhere else, there's now been also some nostalgia for it, but it codes as very right Catholic. So they put up this column that was knocked down in World War I, uh, this column to Mary, that was kind of an imperial symbol. And that's like a right Catholic thing. Uh, where in Poland, there's actually very good memories of, of the Habsburgs, but it just that just means people have taverns that have uh, old Emperor Franz Joseph on this. It doesn't have any like political significance, really. Have we brought it back to life, Jacob? Have we done anything, or is it still dead? I'm trying to to blow on the embers. You know, I hope this book is trying to. I'm a kind of patriot of Eastern Europe, in exile, so I hope I hope it comes back. I hope people get interested again. And uh, start reading Hashek, start reading Rabal. Get, uh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it comes back.